Talk Show is brought to you by... Hey, want to feel young again? Are you tired, run down, have aches and pains, brain fog? This is science-based, not hype or fancy marketing. It really works. Carbon-60 helps detoxify your body on the cellular level. It stabilizes free radicals, just like the antioxidants found in red wine and berry stew, but on a far smaller, more bioavailable nanoscale. It's like a bottle of electrons, helping your body to function better. You can also apply it on your skin, topically, over muscles, joints, or organs. Most people feel results within minutes. This is not a drug. It's organic carbon. Feel better today. About 95% of our users report more energy and clarity of mind within 10 days. Give us a call at Greska's Carbon 60 at 720-600-6040 or visit our site at c-60.com. Call 720-600-6040 and feel young again. Okay, so you're listening to this at the moment? Yeah, I'm listening to you guys, yeah. Okay, so we're on air. That's great. I'm glad that you joined us. <laughs> so is what we're... Oh, I'm on air too. Okay. <laughs> so you're on air too. Okay. <laughs> All right, then... Well, you're definitely on. Uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be listening. All right, okay, then we will give it a go, Hurricane. Yeah. Thanks for your help. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that was a little bit of fun. Okay. <laughs> a so great way to start. now that we are actually here, <laughs> we will actually continue. We're going to continue, yeah. So we were going to start talking to you about why um, we actually started this radio program. Okay. So my name is Dr. Christian Heim. And my name's Dr. Caroline Heim. And I'm a consultant psychiatrist. And I'm an associate professor at a university. And in a previous life... I used to be a lecturer in music. And a previous life, I um, actor. And so we have together put together one of the largest studies in this, well, actually the largest study in the world, in what makes rela uh, relationships last. And we're using that as a springboard to come to you with ideas about relationships. Because as Caroline said, who doesn't want their relationship to last? Yeah, relationships are tough these days. They're really tough, yeah. Okay. We are going to talk about um, why we're doing this program. We're going to talk about a little bit more about ourselves, go into a bit more detail about that. And then we're going to talk about this study that we did, which actually came out in a book in April, which is the world's largest study on long-term relationships. So it's really a, a book for people that really want their relationship to last because it's tough these days. It is. What's the book called? <laughs> that's a good idea. It's actually called Resilient Relationships. And so that's actually the title of our, our, our program. So it's called Resilient Relationships, Techniques for Surviving, Hyper-Individualism, Social Isolation, and a Mental Health Crisis. So that's quite a mouthful. Okay, so let's get into today. Today, obviously, is an introduction to us. It's an introduction to what we do and an introduction to this radio program. That's right. So let's talk about 
why we are doing this radio program. So Caroline, why we're doing this radio program is because iHealth Radio and radio is one of the best mediums to just have on in the background, just listen, just reach a lot of people because, as you said, who doesn't want their relationship to last these days? That's right, yeah. I mean, it's tough out there. I mean, I talk to my students and they say that they can't keep a relationship together for 40 days, let alone 40 years. Um, and there's people out there that want their relationship to last. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about that because um, the study that we did was actually to capture the experience of people who have had their relationship together for 40, 50 and 60 years for a generation that couldn't see how the hell they're going to do anything like that. And that's why we're doing this radio program, because it is basic for every human being to want a good relationship and to want a relationship to last. I mean, the studies show it, Caroline. Adolescents expect to find a long-term relationship for their life. Young adults are obsessed with doing what they can to find a good relationship. Those that find a good relationship in their 20s and 30s are thankful. And then they've got to work on keeping their relationship together. People yeah. who don't have a relationship are still obsessed with trying to find a good relationship. And then by the time you get to the end of your 30s and 40s, people have relationship failures. And there's just no way of looking at that without feeling bad about that. Because when you want a relationship to last and it doesn't, that means that something went wrong. And... They're the sort of things we have to face. And then in 50s and 60s, people start losing their relationships and they mourn the loss of that relationship. So I suppose what I'm saying through all of that is finding a long-term relationship is a major concern for all of us human beings for all of our lives. It is. It's a major concern. And also it has health benefits, doesn't it? Uh, okay, we're working yeah. with the health benefits here, yeah, because that, that's a huge topic. Okay, okay. all right then. All right. I'm going to stick to the topic of, of why we actually need this radio program, right? And uh, where one of the most wonderful things about our society is our technology, um, and we have the technology where we can be connected across the whole world, and it's rather ironic that we're going back to radio, which <laughs> is a technology that we have had for over 100 years now, longer but it's part of the technological revolution that we have had in our society, which can keep us connected. Why, however, are relationships harder to form and keep in a society that is so technologically connected? Yeah, well, it seems like it's got a lot to do with, you know, not being connected with screens, uh, being too connected with screens and, and, and trying to find... Where can you find a long-term relationship today? It's really tough, isn't it? It's really tough. It's really tough. And one of the unintended side effects of our society is that we're actually more isolated. Yeah. And look, we'll get into this when we talk about the book, but um, people out there listening here on the radio, you may have this on the background while you're having some dinner or while you're doing a few things around the house, whatever you do, you'll find that you're, you've got it on the background because, you know what, we're really quite busy. We have a lot of things to do, but we do it alone. And while you're doing it alone, you're sort of going, damn, where's that relationship that I want? Why aren't I together with people? And one of the reasons for that is the amount of connect we have with technology and social media. Yeah. 
and I, I don't think we get into that completely right now. It's definitely one no, of the things we'll, we'll talk right. about that in <laughs> in future episodes or maybe a bit later today, because um, yeah, I, I just I was talking to someone the other day and. Um, kind of like an adopted daughter and she's just finding it such a hard time to find a relationship. She, she, you know, she does the dating apps online and everything and, and it's just really, really tough. Are you in that position? Are you trying to find a relationship and you don't know where you can meet people? Um, you, you want to meet people face to face, but where, where are the venues for that? You know, how, how do you, how do you find people? But yeah, go okay, ahead. So what was her experience with the dating apps? Well, she just, she just, got burnt terribly, okay, terribly what, burnt. What did she try? What was she doing? Well, she was just putting up profiles and um, and she was getting um, people just wanting sex, basically, okay. um, online. And uh, she wanted a long-term relationship. And even though the profile said that the people wanted wrong, long-term relationships after the first date, you know, well, that okay. was that was okay, really so, what they wanted. <laughs> okay, so, so, so what you're implying is that people put up profiles that say, I want a long-term relationship, yeah. and all they want is sex. Well, there, are, yeah, there are some people there that are out there that are doing some, that. <laughs> some, Probably quite a lot. quite a lot. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Okay, so the, the point in that is that we human beings can lie. And unfortunately, we do. We lie to each other. And trust is a difficult thing to build up. And it's only once you get into a relationship where it's committed and somewhere along the line you've said, let's stay together, that you can start building that trust. Before that, it's a whirlwind of strong emotions and difficulties. And getting past that whirlwind is a difficulty because of our social media, because social media has given us the opportunity to lie to each other so much more. However, before you get too down... Hang in there, because once you find a good-term relationship, you're actually into a different game, and you can keep it together. Yeah, we actually like calling it a whirlwind rather than a whirlwind, because it's about being in the world, and there's so many media messages saying, this is the way you do relationships, um, and this is the way you do relationships. But, you know, what? this is one of the reasons why we did our study, is we wanted to go to people that have been in long-term relationships for a long time and get some of their wisdom into, and, and to, to be able to share that with people that are really struggling and want a long-term relationship. Okay, so... You can hear that we've got a lot to get through here. But just to sum up this first section, uh, we're trying to answer the question, why did we start this radio program? And the answer to that is because being in a long-term relationship is central to our existence as human beings, that we now live in a society that makes it difficult to even find a long-term relationship, makes it even more difficult to sustain a long-term relationship. And they're the sort of things that we'll be talking about. And along the way, we'll be answering your questions, I hope, down the track as to how you can make things more successful in that area. Yeah, most definitely. So, But now I think we need to just talk a little bit about ourselves as, a, as an introduction. All right. Okay, all right. Go on. All right, go ahead. No, no, yeah. no, you start. All right, okay. I'll start. You're, you're... I'll talk about Caroline. No. No, I want you to talk about yourself. Come on. You want to talk about me. All right. You're okay. a psychiatrist. Talk, I am. Talk, a, I'm talk a about psychiatrist. that. Talk about your journey as a psychiatrist. Journey as a psychiatrist. Yeah. Why, why are you interested in relationships? Okay. So, so let's let's put that into a nutshell. So, a psychiatrist is a specialist doctor. So, I trained as a doctor and became a 
general doctor in a hospital, doing all sorts of things, uh, helping out at heart surgeries, um, taking care of patients that had uh, trauma, uh, injuries, um, all sorts of things that happen in hospitals. Then comes the time that you start to specialize in one area. Uh, and I chose psychiatry. Uh, one of the reasons that I chose psychiatry is um, I just felt very at home uh, in the mind, in the brain, in the area where we make decisions rather than in a piece of the body, right? So I could have chosen the heart, right, in oh, that's, cardiology. That's a lump of the body, isn't it? It yeah. is a lump of the body. Kidney is a lo another oh, lump another of the lump. body. <laughs> yeah, but okay, so let's look at the brain. So is the brain another lump of the body? Uh, in a sense, it is. But the people who look at it as a lump of the body, that sounds bad. How do it we does. get off that? <laughs> <laughs> they do great work, believe me. I mean, I am I mean, in awe of those surgeons and things like that. Because... Yes, yes. The, the brain is an amazing lump of the body, okay? <laughs> okay, but the, the people who look at the brain itself are called neurologists. They get in there to find out where the nerves are going, where the connections are made, where injuries are, and how there's pathology there, so things that go wrong with the brain. But a psychiatrist actually looks at the mind. And one of the things about the mind is that we are still debating what the mind is. Now, the mind is best thought of as a process. It's a process of thinking, feeling and acting and relating to other people. So if the mind is a process and one of the central things about this process is that it's relational, uh, there is no mind in this world that's by itself. It only gets to express itself when there is another mind to share the experience. So right there, we can see how fundamental relationships is to psychiatry. However, I digress. You do, you do. I'm actually asking you about your pathway. I okay, am, yeah. I am, I am. And so I decided to go into psychiatry, which has got to do with healing the mind. Now, the mind is embodied in the brain. So, yeah, I, I know a fair bit about the brain. All of science knows a fair bit about the brain, but the people who know about the brain still haven't answered the question, where is the mind? Where is the personality? What is the relationship between what I experience and the actual world? So you, Caroline, have a screen in your mind somewhere that looks around this room and you can see this table, you can see those chairs, and I have got the same screen going on in my mind. And you do, as a, a listener, have that same screen going on in your mind in your living room or wherever you are at the moment. But how do we connect those? How do we know that what you're seeing in your mind is the same as what I'm seeing in my mind? We actually don't. Because one is objective, and we do hope that there is an objective world, but we all have a subjective experience of that. And this is relational. I have to trust you that your experience of the world that I'm looking at is kind of the same as mine. Okay, that's getting really deep. Okay. <laughs> it is, it is. But what I'm saying is it's part of um, the relational aspect of the mind Yeah. and why, as a psychiatrist, I'm interested in relationships. Okay. So, okay, on a more day-to-day -day yes, basis. Yes, yes. So you became a psychiatrist because you were interested in the mind. But why... Why specifically relationships? I know you've explained how the mind is, you know, yep. relational in that way and it's part of our communication and, yep. and all of that. But talk to me about why why it's important because you're in mental health. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's let, let's speak that. When I became a psychiatrist after. God knows how many years of study. Yeah, I know. It's I forever. started doing what psychiatrists do. So I, I treated anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, people who were suicidal, people who had eating disorders and anorexia, or people who had had what we call post-traumatic stress disorder and a whole lot of disorders like that. But you get to this stage where you go, okay, there are a lot of people suffering today from mental illnesses. And... The idea was, and this actually came from a lecture that I listened to in 2007, where a senior psychiatrist said, hey, it's all good treating these things, but we as psychiatrists have got to do our part to make sure that we prevent people getting anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, or bipolar in the first place. And by that stage, 2007, it was clear that mental illness was rising in our society, and there was something about society that was contributing to mental illness. So I started looking at this and got interested in the idea of relationships. And I thought that if I work on relationships, then I'm doing my bit to stop people getting mental illnesses in the first place. Yeah, great. So you were in private practice for a long time. About How, how many years were you actually in? Okay, so I've been in private practice for about 16 years or so. Yeah. Right? But I started off with um, war veterans, people mm. who had um, fought in the Vietnam War, in the war in Afghanistan, and for Australians, there was a war in East Timor. And what would happen is these people would come back with a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, and it would half ruined their lives, yeah. all right? It was very hard. They'd have a list of problems. Anger. They'd be drinking a lot of alcohol. They'd be smoking a lot of weed. Uh, they would find themselves really depressed. They couldn't sleep. They would have nightmares. But the one thing that was really difficult was that their relationships would break apart really quickly. Oh, so tough. Yeah. And so I found myself um, saying, okay, I've got to help these people's relationship. Yeah. And it was one of the first things that we would do because although the journey of getting well from war trauma takes years, a relationship can be over in a couple of months. Yeah. So one of the first things that we worked on was somebody's relationship. So for years I started doing couple therapy without realizing that I was doing couple therapy. And when I saw how grateful these people were that I saved their relationship, uh, then they could work together on the mental illness themselves, and I got better outcomes. So I thought, what way to continue prevention in mental health than by working on relationships? And that's how you really got into that's really how I got relationship into work and why we wrote the book and things. That's like how that we too. wrote the book. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And so we ended up writing a book on relationship. But now I've got to ask you, Caroline. <laughs> earlier on, you said that you worked as an actress in New York City, and how does somebody who starts off as an actress in New York City make a journey to co-writing a book on relationships? Well, yeah, this is a very, very different journey than Christian's. So, um, yeah, I went over to New York because we are, of course, Australian. I guess you gathered that with our accent. So I went over to New York at the young age of 17 uh, to study uh, acting at the American Academy of Dramatic Art. Um, and then I stayed in New York and I worked on the New York stages for about Ooh, about six years um, performing in mainly live shows. I did a little bit of television, a little bit of 
um, voiceover, um, fun stuff, you know, um, as the voice for the Qantas Koala um, on on uh, the radio and on uh, some television shows and things like that. So lot, lots of fun times in New York. But, you know, what really interested in me in, in theatre was that it is all about relationships. Theatre is very, very much about relationships. It's about dramas in relationships. It's about conflict in relationships. And um, I really uh, have always been fascinated in relationships. So after studying in New York, I then decided, you know, uh, it's probably time to have my children, which we did. Well, um, mine too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're your children too. They are, they are. Actually, in many ways, they're much more like you than me. <laughs> anyway, so after a little bit of hiatus there, um, to bring up my kids, I, I really wanted to pass on some of the knowledge I had about theatre to um, students. So I got a PhD and um, I'm now lecturing in theatre at a university in Australia, which is incredibly rewarding. But that still doesn't explain no, it doesn't. As much. It doesn't. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the journey so far is that you were doing some acting in New York City. We came back to Australia. We uh, had a family. Uh, you started studying uh, theatre as an academic. You worked your way to have a PhD, and now you have a university position, and you have uh, students, okay? But the one thing that I've got to ask is... Actually, I may explain it, how we ended up writing that book together, how the methodology that you came up with was so suited to relationships that we could write a good book using your methodology. So I want you to explain about those post-performance discussions that you got into. Oh, yeah. Okay. So obviously, every academic chooses a research area. And my research area was, interestingly enough, relationships in the theatre. Yes. So I got to write two books. I, I, I travelled worldwide and interviewed actually over 200 um, actors and audience members to talk about how they perceive those relationships in, in the theatre, the, the psychology behind them, how that works, um, and, and very interesting information there. But during that time, what I did is I actually developed a methodology for interviewing um, actors and audience members. It was really quite unique um, and, yeah, lots of fun too. Okay, so um, I'm just going to fill in a few bits there because uh, along the way you did a, a counselling course? I did. I'm a Lifeline certified uh, crisis counsellor, so that's a crisis line in Australia, Lifeline, and I'm also a facilitator. So yeah. I was obviously learning lots of counselling skills along the way. I studied um, Carl Rogers and, and all sorts of things like that. Yes, I was going to ask if you did. Yeah. <laughs> what did you learn from Carl Rogers? I learned about uh, group psychotherapy, so um, basically uh, how to uh, really facilitate conversations with people that are struggling. And then I applied that and adapted that to an interview situation so that that I could draw out the depths of, of the um, the psychological motives and everything underneath things that people were saying. And what did you learn about listening from Carl Rogers? Well, actually, yeah, that's really interesting, something that I pass on to my students when I teach them about interviewing, uh, which they have to do when they're um, doing their assessments. So I learned about reflective listening, about um, prizing, about um, valuing what people say. I, I learned about active listening, um, and uh, I, I developed my own techniques to um, 
to to go to the depths of you know why people struggle in relationships. Okay, so part of what I want to look at here is that uh, you found ways to draw out of people information from them. So uh, I have more of a science background, and what scientists tend to do is come up with ideas and then see if their ideas are right. But through listening and Carl Rogers, uh, you learnt how to draw ideas out of somebody else. And this is why I want you to get on to the post-performance discussions. So I want you to um, uh, explain what a post-performance discussion is and how you came up with a method to draw ideas out of audience members rather than having directors and experts tell people what they should be looking for. Okay, so I um, held post-performance discussions after plays. Plays that had content that was contentious, plays that had content that, you know, sparked a, a community conversation. Um, for okay, so we'll have to talk about what a post-performance discussion okay, is. Okay, all right then, okay. Right? So, so it's, imagine okay. you go to a play, yeah. all right? You've just seen a wonderful play and then somebody says there's a post-performance discussion and... I'm going to ask, what's that? Okay. So it's usually when all the actors and the directors come out on stage and talk about how they put the play together and, and they answer some questions about the play. And But it's a lot of, um, uh, of the actors and the director talking about their process. Whereas I developed a new method for post-performance discussions, which is let's talk about the content of the play. Let's talk about the issues that the play brought up. Let's have a community conversation. What are your thoughts on, for example, a play that's to do with um, someone dying of cancer? Do you have someone that has died of cancer in your family or are you struggling with someone that is dying of cancer at the moment? What are you struggling with? How did the issues in this play help you? Can we have more of a conversation about that? So just to put that into context, what I was struck with when Caroline first developed this was that she started asking audience members what their experience was. She wasn't asking the director or the actors on stage who were just given the performance, but you start making the audience member an expert. That's How right. do you actually do that? Well, just by prizing their comments, by um, asking them leading questions and asking them to share their experience. So it's all about, it's very experiential. Um, people would often cry and, and get very emotional in the post-performance discussions. Um, some of the audience members would start sharing their stories with each other. And it became a really wonderful community event rather than just um, very expert driven. It was privileging the voices of the audience members, privileging their stories and creating an environment, which is also another Carl Rogers technique, creating a, a climate that, that relaxes everyone enough and that they feel safe enough to share their stories in. Uh, yeah, some of the post-performances uh, discussions that I was at, uh, people felt safe enough to argue with each other. They did. <laughs> Actually, someone, one couple had an argument and someone walked out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And, and that's, again, that's a very safe environment. I mean, you're sitting in amidst, amongst strangers and, and you know, um, you're discussing some really deep issues sometimes. And, and, and obviously it's going to get heated if it's political it or does. something. It does. Yeah, it gets yeah. political. So, so we were at plays that were, let's say, about kings and queens and politics and why somebody got beheaded and what happened in a relationship. And then people would start to um, relate that to their own relationships. Yeah. and such, sharing the stories of their own relationships, 
what went right and what went wrong. And it was just amazing how much information people were willing to share to have a really vital experience. That's right. So, but it is all very much about creating a safe environment for people to share on that deeper level. Okay. So what I wanted to do was to ask all about that because I watched you do that and you did it so well with a group of over a hundred people to create a safe environment. So when it came to looking at the book, um, what we did was we were able to use your methodology to go beyond what science was able to do in generating its own ideas so that we could draw ideas out of the people that we were interviewing. Yeah, very okay. much so. Yeah. So shall we, shall we get on to the book? And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Book? Okay, so why, why did we write the book? Yeah, yeah because um, here we are, a psychiatrist and a theatre lecturer <laughs> writing a book on relationships. Now, this theatre lecturer already had two books of expertise on relationships in the theatre, basically relationships between the actors and the audience and relationships between actors and uh, actors on stage. And this psychiatrist had uh, 20 years' experience pretty much in psychiatry and lots of years' experience doing couple therapy with people Usually one of them had a mental illness of some sort, but just trying to to work on on those depths of of bringing them back together again or healing all of the hurt there. Yeah, and so after lunch one day, we were reflecting on all the people that we knew that had good relationships. But they were old people, okay? They had been together 40, 50, 60 years, which means that these people were in their 80s. And we went, oh, my gosh, these people are going to leave this earth soon. That's right. And we just felt that the secrets that they had to keep their relationship together for all that time could go with them. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that you've actually got people in your life, grandparents or um, people that have even passed away already, that have that wisdom, that have kept their relationship together for that long. And, you know, maybe they've shared some things with you or maybe they haven't. They've just modelled it to you. You've seen how amazing their lives are. You've seen their love. You've seen their their um, commitment to each other and you think, wow, <laughs> how on earth did they do that? And, and of course, a lot of people in, in that generation, married 40-plus years, have gone through a lot and have some, some wonderful um, secrets and, and things to share. Yeah, so our original idea was just to capture these relationships. And don't laugh, I'll go ahead laugh, but our (laughs) original idea was to have a coffee table book with a pretty photograph in it of of, uh, couples and a little story about their long-term relationship. Uh, That was our original idea, but then it went scientific because we looked at the evidence of all these studies that had done studies like this on people who had kept their relationship together and how they did it. And you know what? We found a few things. One, we found that there weren't many studies that actually did that. And secondly, the studies that did that were really small and really limited. And because of the situation that we found ourselves in, we thought that we could include a whole lot of people in this study and with our combined expertise that we could put together a pretty decent study on this. Yeah, and we also thought, you know, um, experts say, okay, we're going to ask couples these questions and these questions and these questions. But we thought, 
What about young people? What questions would they like to ask people that have been married for, you know, 40 plus years? So we thought, okay, let's actually ask younger people. Okay. So that brings uh, to the for an idea called an intergenerational dialogue, right? Caroline, could you explain to us what an interrelational, uh, intergenerational dialogue is? Well, it's basically asking younger people if they could ask people question married 40 plus years, what would it be? Um, and then asking, getting those questions, getting the top five questions that the, the young people wanted to hear. We interviewed um, around, well, wait, sorry, we surveyed about 300 people asking them those questions. And we, they came up with five top questions that they wanted to ask people that had been married 40 plus years. Then to create the intergenerational dialogue, we went to the people that had been married 40 plus years and we asked them those questions. Okay. Now, I know we're going to revisit this in future episodes, but I just bet that people are itching to hear what those five questions were. Okay. <laughs> Let's do a countdown from five to one. Okay. All right. So, oh, from five to one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then. So the, the... Before we get to the top question. All right, then. Okay. So number five was how do you connect? How do you stay connected? Yeah, and not argue. And not argue. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And number four was actually how do you stop arguing? Oh, no, number four. Sorry, my mistake. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> number five was how do you keep connected? Mm-hmm. Like emotionally? How do, yeah, yeah. Just stay stay connected. Okay. Like, especially, I think the young people want to know that because they are finding it hard to keep connected with people in this screen world. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number four was... How do you stop arguing? How do you stop arguing? Okay. So arguing gets uh, looked at as a negative. Yeah. It never feels good. No. And in future episodes, we've got a lot to say on arguing. Because we have a lot to say on arguing. we found a lot about arguing. Yeah, that we That was very helpful. Yeah. Uh, ways to, let's say, argue productively. <laughs> okay. Can we go to number three? Yeah, number three is how do you keep your marriage fun and not boring? Um, and there were some really great questions about this. You know, um, how, aren't you you bored seeing the same person day in, day out? Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. the fun's got to be there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just that we found that maybe fun for older people is a bit different <laughs> For what younger people think is fun. Oh, but they still had fun and they had different ways of having fun. Fun is fun. Fun is fun. That's right. Okay. The number two question. This is a fun one too, actually. Fun one too. Fun. Fun. (laughs) Um, Is the spark still there? So um, they wanted to know things like, um, are you still, you know, having sex when you're in your 60s? Um, uh, You know, is, is it still alive? You know, is the spark, is it still fun? Is it still interesting? Is it, is it still hot? Uh, still hot. There's a good word, hot. Oh, you're still hot. <laughs> yeah, but that was obviously very much on their minds. <laughs> well, it is. It is. Um, okay, so this is another thing that we are going to get into, uh, that um, we live in a very sexualized society. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there are some advantages about that, but there are some disadvantages about that too, because uh, in my experience as a couples therapist, uh, people are under a lot of pressure to have great hot sex. Yeah. And uh, we're going to talk about that because the realities of sex are actually much more beautiful than than society makes it out to be. And a lot deeper. A lot deeper. Maybe not quite as hot. (laughs) Maybe a bit of hot and and deep as well. Okay. (laughs) All right. Okay. But 
The main reason uh, that we're here is actually for the number one question that young people wanted to ask. Yeah, and this was actually a really overwhelming response, over 60% of the um, the young people. And these are couples, by the way, married just for three to ten years um, and or, you know, long-term relationship, not necessarily married but cohabiting Who together. wanted to know the answer to that, this the, question? The, yeah, they... All the people that took this survey wanted to know the answer to this question and the question that they wanted to ask was, how do you do it? How do you keep it together? Do you have a secret? Do you have a glue? You know, what is the key to keeping a relationship together that long? Oh my gosh. And someone even said, you know, how is it even possible? You know, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I can't state this enough, how important this is, that everybody who was even in what they considered to be a failing relationship, they wanted their relationship to work. Nobody wanted to go on to somebody else or to have um, a, a series of relationships. Nobody planned that. They wanted their one relationship to work. And uh, this was a sad truth. Uh, it was a beautiful truth in that we are actually wired for relationship and for one close relationship. And we've got studies to show that the um, closer you can get to having fulfillment in one relationship, the happier you would be. But the sad truth is there are so many pressures on all of us to be individuals, to have interest in so many different areas, that we've now created a society where it's actually harder to keep one relationship together. But the yearning out there was, please let us know. Can you let us know how to do it? Yeah. What are your secrets? Yeah. yeah. And so, so just to just to clarify, we had uh, couples who were together in relationships from about three to ten years saying, could you please ask relationships that have been together for 40 or 50 years how they did it, how we could do it, what are those key ingredients that we could learn from that we need so that we can have the relationship that they did. Yeah, yeah. And then, well, we then we had to pe find people married 40-plus years. <laughs> yeah, Which we did. We did. Which we did. So um, we actually ended up interviewing or uh, surveying um, over 1,400 people. This actually makes this the largest um, study on long-term relationships um, in, in the world to date. Um, yeah, in, yeah. Of this kind, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Caroline's job was to interview. <laughs> yeah, so I did the interviews. And so we managed to get uh, 90 couples. So that's 180 coupled individuals um, from all around the world. So the study represents 52 different countries, yeah. which is really exciting because, you know, different experiences, different people from different countries. Yeah, and uh, and my role was to present the scientific expertise and the evidence. So the, uh, the book cites over 900 scientific papers and also to use my experience as a couples therapist to be able to speak from a clinical point of view to the evidence of the interviews and the surveys that we had done and all the scientific theories and to bring these three together, the clinical evidence, the, uh, the surveys and the interviews and the scientific theories, and this was a five-year project. Yeah. So now we've got this book. Yeah, so it, it took us a long time. You yeah, know, yeah, with it took a long Because it, was it wasn't only the interviews, of course, 
um, which were, you know, they ran for about an hour and a half, the interviews, and we, we really got to some really deep subjects, which we'll share in future episodes. Um, uh, and also Christian, of course, formulated the questions in, and we added the, the five questions from the younger people. But um, yeah, it was it was it was quite in depth because we also then had to put together a survey of 925 um, people took the survey worldwide again. Um, and okay, so yeah, just to clarify that survey, that, uh, so uh, we've got about 300 people uh, that we asked, "What questions do you want of the older couples?" And then we interviewed 90 couples, so 180 people, about their ideas and answers to those questions. But then we also surveyed another 925. 925. We surveyed another 925 people just so that we've got a much broader and larger number of people answering the questions that the young people posed. But the advantage of what we did was uh, when you ask surveys, people can't tell you what they want to tell you. They can only write answers in written form. When you interview 90 couples, as Caroline did, then it becomes a dynamic relationship where you can ask questions that move in a certain area. You can be interrupted. Uh, There may be time for people crying. There may be time for some anger or arguments. And there are things that happen in that moment, which means that you can go deeper into the experience of uh, a couple's response to any question. Yeah, and that's where um, the, the live experience of interviewing them is is really important and special. And um, I was able to observe the couples and um, obviously observe them crying, um, but, but not only that, just the touches that they had, their interactions themselves. And that told a story too. Or there was the the, the look, the, 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 the worried look, or the can I share this look, and told such a story of their relationship or maybe something that they were holding back that they that was too difficult for them to talk about um you needed to be there in person and that's why that was, the whole, one, that was the whole thing that that's so different than than a survey where yeah people can write anonymous um answers but just watching those interactions or the sadness of it or the even you know when they had physical disabilities not being able to shake my hand um, and, and, and things like that and, and the pain in their eyes when they're explaining things um, like the death of a child or, or something extreme like that um, and also the, 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 the opportunity for me to cry with them or, or to, to be there with them on that journey. Okay, so what do we do with all this information? <clears throat> the important thing for you out there, wherever you happen to be today, is that this information has to be relevant to help you in your relationship so that your relationship can actually last. So we took the experience and the wisdom and the knowledge from all of these couples who had been together 40, 50, 60 years. Then we had to do what's called contextualization. So in other words, we had to put it in the context of today's society. So today's society is dominated by a few major discourses that affect all our relationships. So the first one is uh, what's called hyper-individualism, where we are all called upon to be individuals, but even individuals without regard to society values. So a kind of a uh, F you to everybody else. <laughs> I'm here to take care of myself. Now that, I've got to say, works against relationships 
in the first place. Yeah. So I spent I spent a chapter looking at the scientific theories of how we can reconcile. Can you still live in a hyper individual age and still carry on a relationship? You have to actually explain what hyper individualism is. Hyper individualism kind of a definition. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, so basically, hyper-individualism is a tendency of people to act for themselves in an individualistic way without regard to society. Mm. So it's, it, it really is turning your back on traditional values to live the life that you want. The problem is that doing that leads to a lot of misery and a lot of problems. And for an age that is looking for pleasure and fun, there's just too much misery out there. Yeah. And that's something that we're going to talk a lot about yeah. uh, um, in, in future episodes. But um, here I just, I just want to say that in this age of hyper-individualism, in other words, taking care of yourself, we've actually found that for two people living together in a relationship, the most selfish thing they can do for themselves is to take care of their relationship. Yeah. Because of all the health benefits, the emotion benefits, the relationship benefits, and even the fun benefits of being in a relationship. All right? Yeah. Okay. You've, we've talked about the health benefits so far, so twice now. So you want me to? Yeah, talk about I do. Something? I do. Um, the, the mental health benefits and the physical health benefits. Just if you could go over some of, uh, just just in general, talk about. So it. in in general, we sort of found that people who are in relationships live longer. They live uh, healthier lives. They live happier lives. They have a less depression. They have less anxiety. They commit suicide less often much less often, by a factor of six. So a relationship protects your happiness. It protects your emotional well-being and your physical health. And we'll get into all of those benefits because they are absolutely huge. Yeah, right? okay, good. All but right. we're, we're into the contextualization. Yeah, okay, so, so it wasn't only hyper-individualism. What, what's the other context that we needed to, to put this study in to make it part of the 21st century um, uh relationship discourse. Yes. Yeah, so the the big illness in the 21st century is mental illness. Depression is now the greatest contributor to um, the global burden of disease. So in other words, it's the thing that's keeping us the most unhealthy is depression. Uh, suicide rates in the last 30 years, particularly in the United States, have gone up by Oh, it's like 4% a year. We're, we're, we're looking at a 33% increase on 1999 levels, which is just huge. Yeah. And we know that relationship is a major protective factor for all mental illness. And so that was the second uh, contextualization that we did in the book. The third was what we call social isolation. Now, social isolation is not just in a pandemic, you're, you have to social distance. It's also in a world of... Uh, social media, where we spend so much time engaging with the screen that we spend less time engaging with each other as people. Mm. And this is actually changing our brains. And a relationship is something that can change your brain for the better because you actually need to use your brain and your mind to relate to something outside of yourself yeah. that is alive, changing, and unpredictable as people <laughs> are. Whereas a screen is actually quite predictable and quite unchanging. You can get into a rhythm of predictability. You can get all the pleasure that you want from a screen, but it is 
quite predictable and under your control. And so we are de-skilling in the area of relationships, thanks to our social isolation. And I can hear what you're saying. You're thinking, oh my gosh, this is so hard. You know, I love my phone. I love my screens. I actually find relationships through my screens. Um, uh, and and, and it's, it's tough. You know, how do we manage this? It's if it's changing our brains, it's changing our brains, but it's also changing society in so many ways and the way that we look at relationships. And how do we how do we get away from that or what techniques? And we'll be talking about those sort of things in future episodes. Yeah, we will. And in fact, um, look, I know that um, our technology is absolutely amazing. We've been able to do things that we can't do before. We do have more pleasure. We do have a whole lot more fun opportunities, but it comes with a side effect, an unintended side effect. And the unintended side effect is that we find less of our fun in people uh, close to us. And yet, if you were to imagine this whole world with with all of its fun, with all of its movies, all of its travel, all of its entertainment, but you were the only person in the world, all of a sudden it would look like an absolutely dreadful world. And what we need to do is take care of the people around us so that relationships become something that we don't just take for granted, but we actually work on to keep them in our lives. And getting back to the point of why we're doing this particular radio show, it's so that your relationship can thrive. So that if you're thinking of moving away or having a break from that person or thinking that it may not work out or maybe that it's over, that it may be time to think again that there are things that you can have because what you have in front of you is probably the most precious gift that you can have. Your relationship is actually your greatest asset. Yeah, and that's actually one of the things that we we really like saying a lot, that your relationship is your greatest asset. And it's actually all goes into the title of the book, actually, Resilient Relationships, because it is about building resilience. But you do need skills. We, we're, we're de-skilled now, you know, in, in that area. We're putting all of our energies into career building and money making and stuff, but we're de-skilled in the relationship area. Okay. So we're getting close to the tail end of the show here. And uh, every time we have a show, I will give at least one technique that you can put into practice for your relationship to make it better from today. And I'm going to do that, but before we do that, we're going to give a little summary of what today was all about. So today's our, um, our introduction to us, our introduction to this uh, broadcast, and we hope that we have answered a few of the questions, like, why did we start this radio program? Yeah. Why did we start the radio program? Okay. So we started this radio program because there are people like you that would like to have your relationship last for a long time. And like you, there are people out there that live in a society that has so many pleasurable things and so many experiences with so many pressures that it's actually harder to keep a relationship together in today's society than it would have been, say... 40 or 50 years ago. Most definitely. Most definitely. It is actually harder. So that was the first question that we wanted to answer. Why did we start this radio program? 
And then we looked a little bit about ourselves as an introduction. I hope we won't be speaking this much about ourselves <laughs> in the future, but we wanted to talk to you about our journey as to why we're really passionate about um, relationships and long-term relationships in particular. So Christian talked about um, his journey as a psychiatrist um, and uh, how he became interested in couples therapy and uh, how he saw the huge benefits even in the mental health area um, for keeping relationships together um, and uh, that, that would, of course, improve the mental health of his patients. Um, and then we talked about my journey, which was through, interestingly enough, um, theatre and acting in New York and then um, coming to uh, write some books on the relationships in theatre and developing a methodology for interviewing people that uh, we were able to use when we brought our skills together and was, again, bringing our skills together to write a book to uh, help people um, have long-term relationships. And that brings us to the third question that we wanted to answer. Uh, what is our book about? What is the study that we did? What are we basing all our information on? And in that, we come together because, as you know, we're a married couple, okay? Uh, but what we're doing here is using Caroline's skills and her methodology and her relationships on stage and my clinical skills as a couple therapist and as a clinical psychiatrist to have put together a book which is uh, based on the world's largest cross-sectional study on long-term relationships ever. So we looked at almost one and a half thousand individuals from over 50 countries uh, with almost uh, a thousand scientific papers cited in a five-year project that we put together because we believe in relationships. Uh, as cliche as it sounds, we believe in love. We believe in having a fun life. And it's been our personal experience that the most fun that we've had is together, is in our relationship. Yeah, and we really believe in the equation that, you know, one plus one does equal two, okay? And two is, is so powerful. It is so strong. <laughs> yep. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, a few little take-homes. Your relationship is your greatest asset. Uh, and the most selfish thing that two people can do for each other is to take care of their relationship. Because in an age where selfishness reigns supreme, I want you guys to be as selfish as, as selfish as you can and take care of your long-term relationship. Yeah. So are you going to give us a technique? Yeah, I am. I yeah, am. I'm going to great. give you a technique. So this is the first technique that uh, any couple can do that, uh, that have been together for uh, a day, a year, or 10 years. And that is to actually get together once a week over a cup of tea or during a walk, okay, uh, but spend time together and you just ask yourself two questions. What's going right in our relationship? And can we do more of that? And what's going wrong in our relationship? And can we do less of that? Uh, now, for some people, it can be really formalized. Every Thursday night at 7.30, we get together and we sit down with a cup of tea and we stare at each other in the face and we <laughs> ask ourselves this question, all right? Uh, Caroline and I have never done that, No, 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 we've never actually done that. So we're actually just saying something that we've never done. <laughs> but probably we do it every night anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, so 
whenever we get together at the end of the day, we like to go for a bit of a walk. Yeah. And we just catch up on what's been happening, and that's how we stay in relationship. And through that, we ask each other, okay, so what's gone right? Okay. Or what's gone wrong? And we create a safe environment so that either of us can say, you know what? This is not working too well. Yeah. Can we do something here? Uh, yeah. Does it sometimes end up in an argument? Yeah, yes. it will. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about arguing in another We'll talk episode. about that. Yeah. But, but now it's just getting together with those two questions. What's going right? Can we do more of that? What's going wrong? Can we do less of that? And if you're able to put that into practice, then you'll be doing all that you can to maximize the chances of getting the best yield on your greatest asset, which is your relationship. Okay, so we're so glad that you joined us today. We hope that you'll join us in future episodes. We always have a little bit of music that ends up in the end. So all the best for your relationships, your relationship's your greatest asset. The best thing that you can do is to take care of your long-term relationship for your mental and your physical health. This is Caroline and Christian signing out. There's a lot of talk all over the Internet these days about the remarkable benefits of carbon-60, and baby boomers are especially excited about it. Whatever generation you're in, if you want more energy, better health, and a boost in vitality, we invite you to try Greska's Carbon-60, a stunning development in free radical destruction. Being much smaller in size than conventional antioxidants derived from fruits and vegetables, it is far more bioavailable to quickly mend the toxin-crippled cells in your body. Greska's Carbon-60 is the only C60 product that is made without the use of undesirable solvents. The only one. Greska's Carbon-60 was developed by a brilliant NASA carbon scientist and 95% report positive results from this Nobel Prize winning technology in just four days. Visit c-60.com. That's c-60.com or call 720-600-6040.